It's time to hit the switch on your energy supply. Make the switch to SSC Airtricity right now, and not only will you be joining Ireland's largest green energy provider, you'll also save 33% on electricity and gas. Yes, 33%. Go to sseairtricity.com today and get your 33% discount exclusively online. SSE Airtricity. This is Generation Green. EAB 2168 euro and 23 cent. Offer online only from the 10th of the 1st, 22. Rates valid from the 1st of the 5th, 22. Subject to change. One year standard unit rate for new home gas and electricity customers and direct debit and EBIL. For details of EAB, T's and C's, rates, exit fees, standing charge, and green energy claims, see sseairtricity.com. Taking stock on News Talk. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland. Driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. You're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at takingstocknt. Today, we'll talk to two of Ireland's senior business leaders ahead of Budget 22 about the global economic landscape and what that means for Irish business. And as we all head back to the office, many of us have examined the world of shared office spaces. We'll hear the remarkable story of the rise and fall of WeWork from the author of a page-turning expose of hype and hubris. But to start us off today on the political political choices facing governments all around the world on carbon taxes. We're joined by Simon Cooper of the Financial Times. Simon, thanks for joining us. Hello. Hi. Simon, in recent weeks, we've seen a new focus on energy across Europe. We've asked where we get our energy from, how can we decarbonise it? And as COP26 approaches in November, undoubtedly the debate on carbon taxes is going to intensify. You've said recently that carbon taxes are the next big political battle. Tell us why you think that. Yeah, I mean, right now you see what happens when the price of energy rises. Uh, Consumers get very scared. Governments don't want to upset their voters. And so they find all sorts of ways to try and get energy prices back down. But we haven't really even hit the issue of carbon prices yet. I mean, that is only about a fifth of the current rise in energy prices is because of attacks on carbon in Europe. But that is what we need. We need to actually tax carbon so that people uh, produce produce less of it. So we need energy prices to stay high to save the planet. But if they stay high, voters will get angry and governments uh, will respond. So it's a terrible dilemma that we're heading towards. Yeah, it, it is because politicians really have no choice. We have to do something radical, but the public has no idea of what's facing them when it comes to carbon taxes. But how effective are taxes in actually changing our individual behaviour? Do you think that the introduction of carbon taxes will have a significant effect? It can if you have an alternative or if you're doing something that's not really necessary. So, for example, flying. If your flight is going to be taxed to really reflect the damage that you're doing to the planet and so for example your ticket to london didn't cost 100 euros but let's say 150 or 200 euros you probably buy less of it and you'd find alternatives you might uh, make phone calls more often or zoom people in london instead of going to visit them a lot and also if you're going to tax uh, car fuel which the european commission wants then You know, do people have an alternative to their cars? Uh, Can they take a bike? Can they walk? Can they use public transport? So it's partly about alternatives and it's partly about, um, you know, do do people have ways not to pump out this carbon? And we are just going to have to A, provide them with alternatives and B, tax them for when they do use carbon and C, very importantly, some people, of course, just have very, very little money. And if we 
you know, tax their fuel, then they are going to be very cold because they won't be able to afford to heat themselves. And so those people we're going to have to compensate. We're going to have to compensate people at the bottom end of the income distribution, the poorest people. But everyone else is really going to have to take a hit. And this is going to be quite painful. It's going to mean less flying, less driving, less, um, you know, having saunas or heating yourself in other ways. We're going to have to ration ourselves. But presumably beyond the dividend that we'll get in reduced emissions from this, there's another dividend coming somewhere. It's a green dividend. So the green economy, which will be undoubtedly heavy with investment in renewable energy and retrofitting, surely that leads to a positive with with creating more jobs. I think it will create jobs. So, for example, already in the US, more people work in solar than in coal by quite a large margin. So these new energy sectors will create jobs. And we'll also, for example, need to have a whole army of people going around homes in Ireland, for example, insulating them. And that's going to create a lot of jobs. But what it won't do is uh, make you feel that your consumption is uh, more enjoyable, that you're getting better stuff. You won't. You'll, you'll have less consumption instead of that you know, trip to Italy. Uh, you will have an insulated home, which won't make you feel much better because, you know, your home will be heated just as it was in the past, but it will be heated in a, in a more fuel efficient way. So, you know, if you think back 100 years ago when homes got toilets and central heating, people were very happy. You know, their home was definitely better to live in. When your home is insulated and so you won't have to um, use as much gas to heat it, you won't you won't particularly feel better. So the benefits that consumers will get are not going to outweigh the losses that they're going to suffer. I mean, all sorts of things, not just flying, buying jeans, buying a cup of coffee. All these we're going to have to tax to reflect the carbon emitted in making those jeans, making that coffee. And so we're going to have less of that stuff if we're going to be serious about cutting our carbon emissions, because so far we haven't been. And so far we're actually headed as a world to increase our carbon emissions by 2030 when the IPCC says that we need to reduce them by 45%. So we're nowhere near hitting our targets. Yeah, and, and I think that's the problem with a lot of the targets that governments have set themselves. They they don't seem realistic or achievable to many people, but the governments keep continuing with their efforts to say it's all possible without showing people how that actually can happen. But just looking at the, the, the rates of um, carbon taxes across Europe, it's quite staggering. The OECD has said that uh, a tax rate of €120 Euro a tonne would be more in line with the recent estimates of our overall social carbon costs. But most countries are nowhere near that. Um, I think Europe is at 60 euros a tonne now, uh, the UK at 54. And in here in Ireland, we're just at 33. So, you know, there's a significant catch up uh, right across Europe if we're to ever make any dent in this. And, and when you look at what happens, say, for example, in France to President Macron, they pay a heavy price when they do try and inject some dynamic that will make a significant a significant change, don't they? Yeah, and you know, there's all sorts of um, kinds of emissions that are exempted. So, for example, I think flying is exempted in Europe right now from from carbon taxing. So there is, uh, you know, there's very few emissions that are taxed and very few that are taxed seriously enough to actually change behaviour. So, what do we do? Well, Macron said what you don't do, which is he slapped a five cent. I think a few cents a litre on uh, tax on petrol. He raised that a bit. And that was a very bad way to do it because you hit in France people who live 
far outside towns who don't have any alternatives because there's no public transport. Often those people are um, in, in those areas are poorer than the average. So you're hitting the poor, you're hitting people who don't have alternative and you do it without any consultation. So I've been reading about, you know, what governments can best do to raise these carbon taxes. A, you have to consult first. You, you, you start a kind of national dialogue. B, you make sure that everyone pays and especially the richest. So for example, if you're taxing um, business class flights on planes, which are very, very uh, carbon emitting because people in business class take up more space than people in the economy, then uh, you're hitting the rich. And so it feels fairer. And thirdly, you also need to pay people back. So, you know, if governments tax carbon, you're raising all this money. Well, you can give a lot of it back. So you can say, OK, we're going to tax you when you emit carbon. But for other activities, we will but you, we'll give you money back that you can use on other things that don't emit carbon. And so people then experience it as a kind of dividend to themselves. Look, I'm being paid for not emitting carbon. So you have to get back and you especially have to get back to the poorest. And, and then you have to give them alternatives. So France is now finally belatedly building cycle lanes and 68 metro stations in the Paris suburbs. And then people have alternatives to not driving. And that's an interesting point about the dividend that people receive, because ultimately, isn't it the state who takes up that cost? Um, and I think one valuable lesson that we've learned from COVID is that our habits are very strong, but they're also malleable. Do you think that governments should be playing a stronger role in, in educating people about our behaviour? There seems to be a reluctance um, to shine a light on our own behaviour. Um, do, do you sense any difference um, in, in attitudes to kind of taking on a public um, public information role? I mean, we've all been informed for let's say 20 years that the planet is in danger that we're missing too much carbon in europe we have very few climate deniers so mostly people know that habits have to change but what a lot of people like to do is they like to point the finger at big business at the fossil fuels industry and say oh you know those are the bad guys as if we're not the bad guys in you know when we uh, emit carbon through our choices and behavior all the time um going on holidays uh, buying new clothes uh, that we don't need. So we have to look at ourselves. I'm not sure governments need to tell us that. I think most people are, are sort of aware of that. It's just that nobody wants to take the pain of changing their behavior. And it's partly because we won't benefit. You know, the carbon we don't emit will help our grandchildren or great-grandchildren. It won't particularly help us. It's not going to change the climate in our day. And what about um, significant climate events that we've seen, say, for example, this summer? Do they have an influence on public attitude to carbon taxes and the way we behave? Like in, in, in Germany, for example, did those floods in July have an effect on the elections? No, I mean, earlier this year, before the floods, the Greens were expected to do very well. And in the end, uh, you know, their performance was somewhat disappointing uh, viewed in the long term. In the US, I mean, these things cause an enormous amount of fear when they happen and people say, oh, well, we really must change now. In the US and in Canada, the Western US and Canada, you have this unprecedented heat wave, you know, with temperatures near 50 degrees, even in normally cool places like Oregon and uh, Washington State. And everyone's saying, oh, well, this is really it. Now uh, we know it's for real. And a couple of months later, everyone's forgotten that. And you see that in America, uh, the big, you know, political arguments, the silly arguments about raising the debt ceiling. So I, I don't believe that these sort of uh, come to Jesus moments last. No. Now, we mentioned earlier that the uh, summit in Glasgow in November, uh, COP26, will generate a new global push uh, on decarbonisation. 
Do you think that the UK's idea in hosting this summit and, and, and putting so much emphasis on it was to present themselves as world leaders in terms of decarbonisation? It's going to be a difficult task if they are because households will be feeling the pinch of this energy crisis and if there's still lines of cars queuing at petrol stations and diesel stations across the UK, it'll be difficult. But did they see themselves as, as, as being leaders in this space? I mean, I think they would like to think they are. And after Brexit, you know, what are you? What is your role? Um, the UK, there is a fair amount of consensus that uh, something should be done about the climate, although nobody wants to pay anything in the short term. And so they announced, uh, like the EU did, a target of getting carbon neutral by 2050. The thing is, these things are easy to announce. You know, by 2050, the UK will be carbon neutral. And that puts the onus on people who will be running the country decades from now. But then you say, okay, well, if you're going to be carbon neutral by 2050, you want to get nearly halfway there by, say, 2030, 2035, and we need to do that to save the planet. So what are you doing now? And they're, um, you know, they're much less brave. So I think that as with a lot of things in Boris Johnson's government, it's more talk than action. Yeah, and at their party conference this week, they've said that they're going to do all they can to prevent a return to the 70s in a winter of discontent. Do you think they'll manage it? Well, I mean, it's largely self-inflicted. I mean, in all countries, energy prices have risen, but only in the developed world, only in the UK, are there, uh, is there no petrol in large swathes of the country? So this was self-inflicted through Brexit. So, you know, if you manage to alleviate a self-inflicted wound, is that success? And uh, well, let, let's see if they can manage it. Certainly a huge amount of political energy is going into trying to fix it now. Uh, but European truck drivers, uh, understandably, don't seem desperate to come to the UK's rescue. Simon, thank you very much. I'm sure that's an issue we'll be coming back to several times. Uh, we appreciate you joining us today. That was Simon Cooper of the Financial Times. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. Coming up, we'll examine the global economic landscape and what the post-pandemic economy looks like for Irish business. I'm joined now by Fergal O'Rourke, who's managing partner at PwC, and Danny McCoy, CEO of business group IBEC. You're both very welcome. Hi, Mandy. Now, in the coming days, guys, you're both going to be extremely busy analysing Budget 22, no doubt, and telling us all what it means for our lives and our livelihoods. But today, if we could just take a step back and look at the wider global economy and discuss what that might mean for Irish business. Virgil, can I start by asking you, how have the major economies around the world weathered this pandemic? I think it's a mixed bag. I think certainly having walked down Baggett Street a few days recently, uh, as a general comment, the Irish economy is rebounding back. We're seeing it in some of the reports issued by the Central Bank at the SRI. Uh, we're seeing it in our own business, and I'm sure Daniel will tell you the same. But generally speaking, the economy is going back. Talking to some colleagues in the US, it's mixed. Uh, it, there's regional variations, there's industry variations. A lot of it is linked to vaccination take-up. Um, so I, I think the jury's still out there. And if Biden doesn't get the infrastructure bill through... I, I think it's not good news for America. I think they need that spend. China, I think we're all waiting to see how the the, the property bubble uh, will play out there. And again, that will have a determining factor. So I think if you are marking the global economy right now, you'd say positive indications, but there are significant risks to the downside if things don't go right, like China, the property and US infrastructure. Danny, just listening to Fergal, there's, there's a lot of change. There's a, still a lot of uncertainty. Um, now, Ireland is a small player in the global markets, but there's undoubtedly issues that we're going to translate and trickle down to our own business landscape. So for you, what are the key external issues that are facing Irish business as we kind of exit this emergency phase of the pandemic? Yeah, so I think 
as you as you say, you know, post the kind of pandemic, and hopefully we are post that now, is that it went on a lot longer than anybody anticipated, and particularly the central banks and governments. And so, the scale of money that has been pumped out in the last eighteen months is really going to be the difficulty to absorb it with real stuff in terms of you know we see that in housing here getting people back into work is is difficult because so much money has been knocking around globally and here domestically. Uh, we're going to be dealing with the aftermath of that quite significantly for a number of years. And Fergal made a comment about you know the speculative bubbles that are out there, possibly in China and the property, but in other areas as well. So I think that will be the legacy, actually, of COVID. You know, um, Tragically, on these kind of events that stand out in our mind, you know, like 9-11, the pandemic, you actually don't see it in the macroeconomic numbers subsequently. And in the Irish case, we've weathered the pandemic really strongly. We don't see any dip in growth for the the aggregate of the Irish economy. So I think that's that's going to be the, the tough part for everybody in business and in government is there's a lot of money out there, but there's not an awful lot of resources uh, in terms of labour or, or other property. Yeah, and just before the pandemic even even happened, I, I heard you speaking at length uh, at a number of IBEC conferences about the need for the state to expand in order to kind of catch up with private investment. And so have you changed your views about that in the last 18 months or where is that at? How How is the state coped with these last 18 months and do they still need to do that big catch up piece that you thought 18 months ago? Oh, definitely. You know, and I think it's I think it was proved um, in terms of the scale of the state, in terms of some of the pressure points we had with the health system right throughout COVID and so on. The, the, you know, the money resources have gone in but the actual delivery resources are still going to be seen as deficient. My point, I suppose, about staping too small was really on the basis when you looked at the numbers of headcount. We, you know, we have about 360,000 public sector workers, probably same level we had 15 years ago. Mm. The difference is we had 1.2 million private sector workers and we now have 2 million of them. You know, So 800,000 more private, no change in the public. And in a modern, sophisticated world, People want their public services embodied. They're personified. More teachers, more doctors, you know, yeah, more infrastructure as well, obviously, but there's a big part of it, people delivery. And and going back to that infrastructure, no small part of the problem at the moment in the planning is actually just not having planners and not having people to deliver the licensing that we require. Yeah, and Fergal, I've heard you speak in the past about Ireland uh, being a good place to do business. So we've heard a lot of uh, discussion in in recent days and we're going to talk briefly about the the corporation tax later. But you've mentioned that, you know, investing in Ireland isn't just about things like corporation tax. It's a good place to do business still. So, but as Danny mentioned there, there's still challenges around regulatory uh, issues and, you know, now we see the energy issues that are rising. So, Beyond the corporation tax, what are the issues that you think that might face us post-pandemic? Well, just to reinforce Danny's point, the era of big gov- bigger government is back with us. And I think COVID was that flec- infection point where the state jumped in again. And I think hopefully infused by that spirit of solving problems, it can continue dealing with issues like planning, dealing with issues like housing, dealing with issues like transport. The last time I checked, I think nearly two thirds of all new investment we get into Ireland is from existing companies here already. And when I talk to all of those companies, and I've spoken to a lot of them over the last six months, they will say to you like things like, you know, uh, Ireland works. And, you know, the story there in the media a couple of weeks back that Intel are looking at putting a European foundry, which would be four times the size of their leaks of plant in Ireland, 
that's because Ireland works for Intel and it works for all those companies because we're pro-business, we're part of the single market, we speak English, uh, we, we have a very positive view of the US. Uh, you, we, we're very welcoming to people to, where we need to bring in those skills from outside to meet the needs of those companies. So it, it take, and, and we, we're good on tax and, we, and we're predictable and we're, we're politically stable. So there's an awful lot of things we tick the box in there. So I'm, I'm still, no matter what the tax changes that will be unfolding in the next few weeks and months, I'm still very positive about Ireland as a place to do business, both for domestic and for international investors. You're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to Danny McCoy of IBEC and Fergal O'Rourke of PwC. Fergal, can you take us through what the government has agreed to on corporation tax and what that might mean for our exchequer? Well, this is an eight-year journey. It started eight years ago when the OECD issued their first report. And at its core, there's two parts to it. The first part says that For 100 years, we had rules that said you only pay tax in countries that you boots on the ground, people there. And the the 21st century business model doesn't require it. So if you're an internet seller or whatever, you don't need to have people on the ground. So the first part says, even if you've got no boots on the ground in a country, you've got to pay tax in the market jurisdiction. So we're going to lose about 2 billion companies that are currently paying tax here. That tax will now go to France and Germany and Italy and Spain, all the other countries they sell into. The second part of it was saying there should be a minimum rate of tax. And that's what all the row has been about, particularly in 2021. And I have to say the government have done a good job. When the OECD were lining up and they got everybody to sign up a couple of months back, we were in with a group of countries like Hungary, Estonia and five other islands that basically I had to look up on a map to see exactly where they were. But Ireland was clearly a prize the OECD wanted to get on board. And Ireland's been very proactively engaged with the OECD. So the announcement that um, we have secured a 15%, no ambiguity, no, you know, it's just 15%. I think that's good news. We, we couldn't afford to be the North Korea of tax. We couldn't afford to stay outside the agreement. And we're going to get money as a result of this. We're actually, our tax rate's going up by a fifth on all these big companies that are here. Not the domestic economy, that'll still be paying tax at 12 and a half. All those big companies' tax bill are going to go up by 20%. That's more money for us. So in cash terms, we'll probably be broadly neutral, I think. In investment terms, there's now certainty and we're part of a global agreement. So I think, you know, when the history comes to be written about this, it will be an extraordinarily positive achievement. And I'd just like to probably identify Pascal Donoghue's election by a single vote as president of the Eurogroup. That role he has had for the last 18 months has paid off in spades. He's been at G7 meetings. He's been speaking to all the key players. I have no doubt that somewhere late in the night at the margins of the meeting, the sort of influence he had because of that role has got us to where we are now. And I I think it's been a really positive development. Yeah, and they have done well at sort of, you know, bringing us along their journey and making us understand what is possible from Ireland's point of view. But for all of that positive, will it affect how other countries look at us and how multinationals will view us in the future. You know, one of the things about corporation tax is not just about the rate, it's about the stability, it's about sovereignty. So do you think, Fergal, that's affected by this? Well, if orange is the new black, well, 15% is the new 12.5%. And I think, no, I think I've, you know, I've spoken to a lot of US companies over the last uh, few months. Three consistent things they say to me. One is they appreciated Ireland fighting the fight. They felt it was entirely appropriate and well done to Ireland. Two, they accepted Ireland would not cut off its nose despite its face and stay on the outside. And three, they, in a variety of ways, have said to me, look, we know Ireland will be at the competitive end. 
of whatever that is. So I don't think it'll have much impact at all. Ireland will now want to make sure, though, that that rates, that this is the end of it. We've had eight years of discussions about the global tax landscape. We've agreed it now. Everybody signed up. Let's close it down and go forward with this new landscape for the next 5, 10, 15 years and see how it plays out. Danny, you're dealing with that landscape every day. So do you think there's a job of work to do now by the likes of Enterprise Ireland, the IDA to, to repackage Ireland and resell us again in a different way? I think we're moving that direction anyhow, Mandy. And I agree with Fergal on the achievement of Pascal Donoghue in particular to call out in, in the diplomacy that was required. And and your and your point, is this not a an Irish government suddenly changing tack and putting up the corporate tax rate? It's joining where the world is going to anyhow. And so one of the virtues is we can't be undercut. And that's a proposition as well. When you put together all of the other aspects, other countries won't be able to compete on a corporate tax that's lower than the agreed international one. So corporate tax is off the agenda, but we've already established our bona fides as being a good investment location for all the factors that Fergal talked about earlier on. Fergal, do you think that what actually changed the dynamic in the end was the confluence of both the OECD and the US coming at this at the same time? There's even a more subtle nuance. It changed when Joe Biden got in because if you go back to January of this year, informally we all knew that Germany and France and others had agreed 12.5 would be the minimum rate. When the new Biden administration and Janet Yellen came out in January and said it should be 21, that completely upset the dynamic of what was going on. And suddenly Germany and France bolted mm. there. So I think it, 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 you, you were right in one sense. The US coming onto the pitch at post the Trump era saying we're here to play definitely brought the issue to a conclusion. But their their insistence on a 21% rate, which they're not going to deliver now, uh, changed the dynamic of those negotiations over the last uh, 10 or 11 months. Have you been surprised by Biden's approach and how he's growing the state and investing in, you know, the government there, taking more responsibility for things like the social welfare packages, he's bringing forward the climate action on the huge infrastructure bill. Have you been have you been surprised at all by the scale of that? No, not really. I mean, it's a traditional Democrat tax and spend approach, you would say. I am a a little bit surprised, you know, when you strip it all back, there is little enough difference between the Trump administration and the Biden administration on trade policy, for example, and on, you know, he was going to be a new a new voice in, in foreign policy. But when you look at how the French were cut out of the Australian, uh, US, UK mm. agreement, that it's still a very much America first trade policy. So the, the tone may have changed in relation to trade, but the substance, there's no real ch- sign of a substantial change in trade policy yet. Well, his Balinar route didn't help us with corporation tax, though, did they? <laughs> ah, I wouldn't, I, I, just to that point, Mandy, you know, you did get a sense Treasury were pushing this a lot mm. more than the White House. And I suspect there was some at the end of the day, don't, don't force Ireland out here, you know. Danny, just we've been talking about the, the bigger picture, but I obviously can't let you go without a bit of a discussion about budget predictions. So when we're going into this budget, we've got a lot of new uh, forecasting. So last week we had the central bank, we had the SRI and also the Department of Finance themselves all increasing their forecasting and projecting amazing growth rates for, for next year. The expectations are then obviously politically very high. What does Irish business expect to get from this budget next week? Well, I think it's going to um, probably be the last of its type in the sense that, you know, there'll be a lot of discussion about the extra billion and where things might go, which is actually a very small amount. The big budget that matters is going to be the carbon budget. That's going to be transformative. And I don't think our society, our corporations, or even the government itself 
uh, fully realises what's embedded in that and its disruption factor. I think the next year we'll be all much more informed about what carbon is and its consequences for our business models. Yes, we were actually talking to Simon Cooper from the Financial Times about that issue earlier in the programme. He's making that very point uh, that carbon tax is going to be the big political issue in the next coming year. Virgil, you're going to be on the airwaves over the next couple of days telling us about Budget 22. Any predictions today? No, I, I just hope the Minister is in a position like, I, I, to do no harm by not increasing taxes. There were some calls in political quarters for tax cuts. I don't really think that's an option at the moment. Uh, much and all, is everybody would love a tax cut. You know, we spent a lot of money. It's great the boy in tax receipts at the moment. If he could do no harm by not increasing taxes at all I think that would be a welcome budget there's definitely a win behind in terms of the revenues coming in but Danny is 100% right we, we saw it flagged in last year that you know we're going to have a different type of budget going forward for the next 20 years this will be the first real evidence of it I think a lot of people it's going to catch slightly unawares yeah, the National Development Plan as well last week that came out, that kind of passed by without much analysis. I don't think people really understand the magnitude of what's being promised here. No, it's got a huge scale to it. Um, you know, we, we know that our GDP um, is, you know, it's grown by over 100% in six years, 2020. And it now looks with those forecasts you talked about earlier on, not alone that it not go down last year during the big COVID year. It looks like in three years, the economy could grow by 25%. It's just remarkable. Um, and against that growth trajectory, stabilising the emissions yes. <laughs> will be hard. Yeah. But we're talking about cutting them by 50% in a shorter time frame now because 2030 is not moving, mm. but we're moving closer yeah. towards it. Yeah. Uh, this, this is just stunning. And the National Development Plan has to be about the infrastructure to allow us to be competitive and still reach those targets. So you're right, it's a huge plan and it's probably the most significant uh, investment story to try and hit those two potentially conflicting needs to keep the economy competitive and to have the security supply mm. and hit the environmental targets. Yeah, I, I don't envy them. It, it's not it's not an easy and, task. And the default, everybody looks at roads. The first yes. thing everybody looks at, what roads are we building? What roads are we not building? It's a much bigger picture now that we're looking at in, in the National Development Plan. Yeah. One final thing just on Budget 22, Danny, for you, and I think Boris Johnson may have robbed your tagline, did he, from your budget submission, Build Back Better? Right, yeah, I thought it was a tunnel you were going to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, but you've said in that budget submission that the Irish business model is at a crossroads and over the next decade, you say, we're entering a time of great promise and ambition. So why do you think that that's, that's, that's possible? Because a lot of people will be coming out of this pandemic afraid of, look, can we rebuild our businesses? Can we get back to where we were? Never mind the ambition to grow. Why do you believe that that's possible? Well, I think that um, you know, COVID did make people stop and think of doing things differently. Um, and so, you know, this kind of blended remote working could it be environmentally friendly. Uh, but the other issue that we've seen over the last number of years in the hashtag movements is that effectively we're seeing collectivism uh, replacing, replacing individualism. And to tackle some of these problems from our infrastructure to the environment, it makes absolutely no sense at an individual level. Yes, we'd all have to change, but we have to add it up. And it's the same for corporates. You know, corporates saying what they'll do for the environment needs to take account of the fact that their suppliers and their customers might not be doing the right things. And so we have to act collectively in so many fronts and we've got the opportunity here in Ireland, I think, in terms of our networks and scale 
to actually crack that ahead of others. And that's why I'm ambitious for Ireland. I think that we've got the right conditions and fair win now. I think we can have a really spectacular uh, next generation. Virgil, final word to you on this. Are you hopeful and positive for Ireland's capacity to rebound? Absolutely. Uh, and you're, we're seeing it right now. But, and, but Danny is, is spot on to reiterate that point. How we approach COVID, how we approach the vaccination as a society and as a nation was fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. And I think that collective approach now to the challenge we're going to face on carbon, I see it now in individuals. You see it in corporates. Corporates are now understand what their responsibility are, not just for themselves, but for suppliers. So I'd agree with Danny. I think I'm really positive now about the next four or five years. And to put it in context, uh, just before COVID kicked off, the economy was softening. There was no doubt about it. We were seeing a slowdown. People were talking about soft landings. That's all gone now. We're, we're hopefully turbocharging through the next couple of years now. Well, we'll leave it there on that very positive note and we'll be back to you next week to see if your budget predictions were right. That was Fergal O'Rourke from PwC and Danny McCoy from IBEC. Thank you very much both for joining us. We're joined now by Maureen Farrell of the Wall Street Journal, soon to be the New York Times. Maureen and her colleague Elliot Brown have written a corporate page turner called The Cult of We, which chronicles the story of WeWork and its epic rise from an office renting space to a company once valued at $47 billion. While it's a story of one company, it also captures a moment in time. It exposes a flood of investments towards startups coming out of New York and Silicon Valley, all in search of the next big tech success at a time when investors began gambling heavily on tech founders in the hope that they would find the next Steve Jobs or Jeff Bezos. Maureen, you're very welcome to the programme. Thank you so much for having me, Mandy. Maureen, it's a great book. I really enjoyed it. Um, Can you start off by telling us a little bit about who Adam Newman is and just give us an overview of how the WE concept came about? Sure. So, Adam Newman may be the world's, uh, you know, sort of most charming, charismatic entrepreneur. Um, He, when he started the company, he was in his early 30s. He had moved to New York from Israel, where he was born and raised. And he started this company, WeWork, that's essentially an office space subleasing company. And um, he had dropped out of college in the United States, and he had um, done a series of sort of odd uh, entrepreneurial ventures that never really went anywhere. And then he stumbled on this idea. He uh, co-founded the company along with an architect, and they had this idea of you know taking big areas of office space, subdividing them. His, his uh, co-founder, this architect, Miguel McKelvey, had ideas of sort of how to make this space really bright, how to use glass. Um, and the rents were, they were able to charge a good amount and sort of make more than they would charge, they would pay for a lease. That was sort of the in, initial idea of WeWork, just a pr- pretty straight up real estate company and commercial office space, which ballooned quickly. Yeah, and you mentioned at the outset there his charisma and his charm, and that was a, a significant part of the journey of this story because he was able to persuade a, a large number of investments that were just simply staggering. Um, I I have to say I thought I knew the story of We Work before I read your book, but it actually doesn't just expose Adam Newman. It also exposes what I suppose the investment culture was at a particular moment in time and how it was chasing. 
facing something um, that it hadn't before. So venture capitalists were looking at the founders and, and not just at the company. And that was a, that was a shift away from what had happened previously, where they they sought out good ideas and maybe put in an infrastructure, a CEO and a management team around it. Now they were looking at the founder in particular. You call it the, the cult of the founder in your book. Yes, um, exactly what you said is what kind of floored us about this story. I mean, Adam Newman, again, this was a realist, a very sort of simple real estate concept. And what he was able to do was convince a huge range of investors, um, so many different people in the financial world, that it was so much more than that and that it wasn't really a real estate company and it was a, rather it was a tech company. And, you know, tech companies are valued so differently than real estate companies. So he sort of used his ability to, um, you know, transform the way people saw things and, um, you know, his kind of cult-like powers to raise billions upon billions of dollars to build this business that he was always telling people was going to be this hugely profitable business. And um, each step of the way, it never was. Yet people kept on pouring money at it. And Mandy, as you sort of point out, again, that was like, it does say something we thought about the financial system. And I'm, I'm glad that that was a takeaway that, you know, there's so many people putting money at something, wanting to believe Adam Newman's story, even though if you kind of looked at the numbers all along the way, the story he was telling didn't really make sense. But it was a period of time, and I, I think we are still in it, where, um, there's a tendency to want to believe this hype and, you know, think you're getting into the next Amazon or the next Facebook while this is an entirely different business than that. Yeah. And, and looking at it from the outside, you tend to think that maybe JP Morgan benchmark uh, and, and others were bamboozled into it. But it's in fact exactly what they were chasing. And one significant investment uh, came towards WeWork from Masayoshi San, uh, the Japanese conglomerate of SoftBank. Um, they had, were the largest investment fund in the world at the time of $100 billion to play with. And it was really a game changer for WeWork. He sort of enabled and encouraged Adam Newman, didn't he? He completely did. I mean, at WeWork before SoftBank came in and that with the first check that they wrote was for $4.4 billion, then they would go on to write more checks and keep on throwing billions at this company. Before that, it was a very fast growing company. They were raising money, but not quite at that level. And Adam Newman, I mean, I mentioned his charisma. I mean, he was also pretty crazy. I mean, he was already, uh, I mean, we mentioned in the book, if you walked into his office at 10 in the morning to... Uh, as he was fundraising, he'd offer you a tequila shot. I mean, he was he was sort of brilliant in many ways, but also wild and crazy. He was already spending tons of money, kind of cashing out for the company, buying houses all over the world, jet setting, um, you know, things that were already starting to raise eyebrows, things in his personal life with investors and people inside the company. And the absolutely crazy thing was they were, Masa came in Masa Yoshiso and Masa, as he's known, and told Adam Newman to be crazier. <laughs> Basically told him, you know, to go out and try to build this company even more quickly. It was already one of the fastest growing companies out there. And he said he wasn't being crazy enough. Go spend more money, grow this company. And it was far from profitable and became even more so. It was just sort of 
essentially when you look back kind of almost torching money after the time SoftBank came in. You've obviously covered many, many IPOs during the course of your career, but it was the IPO where this all sort of came unstuck for Newman because whilst it was a private company, uh, they could, I suppose, mask some of their uh, inadequacies. But as soon as that SI or the prospectus for the IPO became a reality, things began to change and that's where the exposure was. Can you talk to us a little bit about the trajectory of the IPO for the company? Sure. So before this document that you talk about where, you know, companies are forced in the U.S. to reveal financials and a lot of details about themselves and their founders, I mean, bankers were telling WeWork it would be a hundred billion dollar company. I mean, it would have been one of the largest IPOs of the year or really ever. And then these number, this document was made public. It showed WeWork's numbers in plain site you could see that every year it was growing it was losing as much money if not more than it was taking in in revenue which is pretty wild at, at its size so it was billions upon billions of dollars it was losing and then it started to show other things about adam newman and it wasn't even everything but it showed some portion of how much he had sold in stock already from the company it showed that he had taken out hundreds of millions of dollars of loans related to his stock. And it also showed, I mean, just crazy things. Like he wanted to make his wife choose his successor if anything ever happened to him. And then maybe perhaps the icing on the cake is this company, when it went public, it went from WeWork to calling itself We. And, you know, it was a very like an egalitarian company. It was mission driven. And in this document, there was one line that said, uh, Adam Newman, his, the company is owned, the entity is owned by him, will be paid $6 million for the right to the word we. <laughs> sort of what, what people could not get past the $6 million charge, basically, for that word. Yeah, it might have been a, a straw that broke the camel's back eventually. Uh, exactly. But- but, you know, just taking you back to, to something you mentioned earlier, the behaviour of Adam Newman within the company was extraordinary. And some of the tales of the corporate trips and the corporate events that went on would would rival anything you've seen on the Wolf of Wall Street. Can you talk us through <laughs> the type of celebrity that was surrounding WeWork at the time and um, what they were doing to try and, I suppose, encourage that notion of a cult within the company where people actually believed they were part of a big dream? Sure. So, I mean, it, it, it hit in so many different levels. I mean, Adam really saw Adam Newman, the founder and CEO really saw himself as not just like a celebrity, but almost like a world leader. And, um, I mean, he, they allowed him, first of all, just to buy a $65 million top of the line corporate jet, which is something that almost no private company CEO has. But he bought this jet and he was using it. I mean, even in the weeks and months leading up to the IPO, you, you could track this jet. We were able to see he would go to Costa Rica, I think twice in one week to surf. He went to the Dominican Republic, Hawaii. He was flying over, all over the world, jet setting, really jet setting for surf vacations you know, at this like absolutely critical time for the company. 
he, there were all these stories that we learned about of him smoking marijuana on the jet. There was one in particular in which um, my co-author, Elliot Brown, wrote a story about right before the IPO in which Adam and friends took a jet. It was before they had their own private jet to Israel and they had been smoking marijuana the whole plane flight and someone left it in a cereal box on the way out. <laughs> and the pilot found it completely, or some, you know, people on the plane found it completely freaked out. They had to take the jet out of commission. Um, and it, you know, it, once that was printed in the Wall Street Journal, it also raised so many red flags about his ability to uh, run this company. But um, and just just to close this out, just to answer the other part of your question, in terms of the cult. I mean, as I said earlier, they were spending so much money and this would be, they started to have, they had these summer camps all throughout where they'd bring all their employees somewhere and they would have concerts and parties all night. And uh, I mean, there was one in, out in England uh, in this huge field. They had Lin-Manuel Miranda at the height of his ha Hamilton fame come so many different people i mean they would spend tens of millions of dollars on this event and it was that it was to encourage this sort of cult-like idea around the company make people feel a part of something big and special but the the spending that was part of it was just so extreme the thing that keeps striking me in the book is this notion of it was a moment in time uh, for venture capitalism, for the changes in mutual funds and how they were operated. But there's also a fantastic phrase that you use, which is catnip for millennials. And it's this notion <laughs> that there were companies trying to tap into that, you know, search for a community space by millennials. Could you talk us a little bit around uh, what that concept was for this company and how it aligned to other companies like Uber and Airbnb and Facebook? Sure. So there was this idea of just um, the, yeah, the cat for millennials. I mean, they, there was something kind of magical. It's sort of undeniable about at least the office space. I mean, the spaces are really beautiful. I mean, now they're kind of, it's almost like standard fare for co-working or for what offices look like. But if you've been to a WeWork, they're, they're very, they're very open and um, just very interesting looking in a way that office space hadn't been there's like, you know, there's beer on tap, there's kombucha on tap, uh, fruit water. It's like a fun place to be. And it was, especially at the beginning, you know, all these people who were working at home in their apartment, you know, maybe you're a graphic designer, were willing to go in and pay money, meet all sorts of people. It was just sort of a, a really interesting place that they almost didn't, for a while, didn't have to do much marketing. It was almost viral. But then, you know, what you're saying in terms of the culture, they did tap into this idea that, you know, the average millennial, if they could, didn't want to work for a stodgy bank anymore. There were these companies like Airbnb and Uber and um, WeWork that were really setting, saying they were setting out to change the world. And so many Silicon Valley companies, tech companies sort of talk about these these larger missions as a part of their company. And we work like they did with everything else, really took that to the extreme. I mean, one of the, I think at the final summer camp, which was in 2018 in, the, in England, Adam Newman was up on stage and him and his wife were saying, you know, yes, our company is doing so unbelievably well, 
we're going to keep going and we're going to solve the problem of orphans in the entire world. <laughs> that was the level on which he spoke. Like they were going to solve the, at other times it'd say, we're going to solve the housing crisis all over the world. And, um, but yeah, there will be no more orphans because WeWork will fix that problem. <laughs> yeah. And for the Newmans as a couple, it became much more than a real estate offering. They were trying to sell a lifestyle. It was, we live in the end. So that notion of taking children on a journey from say primary school into the workforce and integrating the two became a, a real offering that, that they believed in themselves, it seems. Exactly. Yeah. They, I mean, his wife was in and out of the company. Eventually she was sort of retroactively called herself a, a co-founder of it, even though the history doesn't really uh, show that she was specifically a founder at the beginning. But she, she was very much in charge of starting this school. And at, um, they spent a lot of money and it was in WeWork's main headquarters. And it was good. And they, they ex- were talking very much about it going huge. But it was essentially, you know, that was just one piece of, you know, the takeover of everyone's lives. And uh, the school was, you know, like a lot of things that we work, it sounded, it was beautiful. It sounded really exciting, inspired people to join. And then the reality did not live up to sort of the hype or the marketing of it. It was, you know, just very disjointed. It was, they were, she was changing her mind constantly about what she wanted the curriculum to be, you know, which is, it was tough for the teachers, tough for the teachers to watch the students, um, and parents sort of just get pulled in so many directions. So a lot of people wound up leaving. So ultimately, um, where was Adam Newman's uh, d- downfall? How did it all end for him? The downfall came, so it was September 2019. And it was, you know, on the brink of this IPO that was sort of looked like it was going to take place in September. And it was, he was just the company had many issues, but it also, when we looked back, it looked, he was very much kind of self-destructing. I mean, he was this amazing pitchman, could get anyone in the world to give him money. And then he was going out to pitch to sort of the average investor. And they were asking uh, these mutual funds, you know, the people who buy IPOs. And they were, there's so much skepticism around it coupled with this article that my colleague wrote about um, the real questions about his fitness for office, especially this piece about him transporting drugs on an international flight. That was another piece. There are a few pieces that came together that led to the company and its bankers and everyone insisting that this IPO get pulled. And from there, it just quickly unraveled. It was everyone around him was saying, if you want to actually save the company, everyone, including the CEO of JP Morgan Chase, Jamie Dimon, who had been a real advisor to him, all saying that, you know, if you want this company to survive, you cannot be part of it. So he very kind of quickly stepped away as CEO, um, stepped down. But uh, the one day Numa that I think a lot of is just still wild to think about is the company was nearing bankruptcy in at the end of 2019. Adam steps down, thousands of workers lose their job, and he gets an exit package that's valued at over a billion dollars in total to leave his company. 
Yeah, it's kind of extraordinary to think that nobody intervened and shouted stop before it came to that um, stage where thousands and thousands of people were losing their jobs. So where is WeWork now and has any lessons, have any lessons been learned by the WeWork saga? Like, have there been any new regulatory changes as a result of all this? Do you see the landscape has learned anything from this? Um, and the first part is, I guess, a little a little bit more optimistic we work, um, Adam Newman left, they, uh, yes, a lot, a ton of people were laid off, but they've been in a process of reinvention and really scaling back. They brought in a CEO from the real estate industry. They SoftBank actually pumped billions of dollars more into the company and it's a smaller company. They sold off all these sort of ancillary businesses like, um, education, what's <laughs> that a wave pool company. They have scaled down to being a real estate company, the original thesis, subleasing office space. And they're actually on track to go public in October. So anyone could be able to buy them on uh, a U.S. exchange by the stock. It's sort of it's unclear exactly how it will be, but it it survived the pandemic, this office space company. And um, looks to be at the very least like a, a much less exciting but potentially stable uh real estate company um to your latter question mandy in terms of lessons learned that was kind of one of the hard parts in the book is you know we sort of ended the book as adam left but we had this epilogue and it was interesting like in 2019 in the immediate aftermath of we work it did really feel like lessons were learned Vasa was going out and telling companies he invested in that they had to be profitable. And a lot of different people were saying such things. And there seemed to be more fear around red flags and founders and maybe that they would be reined in a bit. And then unfortunately, this whole climate has changed. I mean, a little bit into the pandemic, um, but the exuberance is back. And a lot of the things that created WeWork, a lot of this uh, like fear of missing out on the next great founder seems like it's back as much as ever. I don't, I don't think we have the next Adam Newman yet, but there's just a lot of examples of, uh, you know, companies where investors seem to be overlooking risks. And there's actually a lot in the public markets right now. There's just been a whole, a whole new movement in the U S for these SPACs, these like this new way of going public and, I don't know, we're just seeing a lot of craziness. So we we sort of joke that we rewrote the epilogue to our book like five times <laughs> and it kept on getting more. We were like, oh, lessons were learned. And it's like, oh, no, no, people are a little <laughs> exuberant. No, 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 no. Their pendulum has swung back just as far. Yeah, it's it's very ironic because in a post pandemic scenario, the WeWork concept is probably what a lot of us are working off. Maureen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. I recommend this book highly to anyone who has an interest in corporate governance or how not to approach investment. Um, it's a marvellous piece of writing and I look forward to, to reading your next one, Maureen. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you so much, Mandy. I really appreciate it. Well, that's it for this episode of Taking Stock. Now, while we broadcast at this time on Sunday mornings, we're also available as a podcast first from Friday mornings on the News Talk app. We've a bit more time in the podcast, so there's extended conversations with our guests today. Many thanks to my guests and to the team of Simon Keane and Stephen Jordan with Stephen McLoon on sound. Jonathan McRae is up next with Future Proof and then it's Gavin Riley with News Talk on the record. So from Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston, enjoy the rest of your day. Taking Stock on News Talk. 
Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. A beautiful bouquet of flowers. It can say more than words ever could. To celebrate, congratulate, or just let someone know you're thinking of them. At flowers.ie, we know every bouquet is special. So every order we receive is hand-picked, arranged with care, and delivered with love across Ireland. We even send a video before it's delivered, so you know it's just right. Say it with flowers at www.flowers.ie. Rated five stars on Trustpilot. 